Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth that that song reminds us of, that we have been purchased at such a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, and that our lives are not our own. We have been purchased with a price. Lord, we belong to Jesus. He came and he shed his blood to purchase for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And Lord, we come here this morning and we just offer our gratitude to you that you have saved us, that you have rescued us from our sins that we were enslaved to, and you have instead enslaved us to a kind master, our Lord Jesus Christ. You have adopted us into your family, made us your sons and your daughters. And Lord, we desire to please you. We desire to be holy as you are holy, Lord, because you have saved us. Lord, we want to be a people who are zealous for good deeds and who worship you and praise you with the praises that you deserve, Lord. And we just recognize how often we fall short, how um, slow and apathetic our hearts can be. Lord, we don't want to be that way. And we pray that you would change us even this morning, that you would sanctify us, that you would continue to make us the sons and daughters, the worshipers of yours that you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 20. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll go ahead and I'll read those verses for us. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So that's where we are in Hebrews this morning. In our American culture, authority and submission oftentimes are words that we do not like to hear, but they are things that were actually a part of God's original good creation. Most obviously, God was the ultimate authority over his creation, mankind, and all of the world was to bend to his will. He was the king. He is the king still. And as God's representatives, man and woman were to exercise authority over the rest of creation together, ruling everything. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see authority present there. There was even an authority structure that was built into the relationship between the husband and his wife. Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, was Paul a chauvinist? Was he just coming up with this rule? No, he goes back to creation. He says, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. 
And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. And this, this order that we see taking place between the husband and wife in marriage and this relationship that God created was obviously not due to some kind of spiritual defect within the woman. That's obvious, because both the man and the woman were part of God's good, sinless, perfect creation. And they were both together created in the image of God, spiritual equals. But this was simply how God designed his creation to be structured, giving differing and complementary roles to the husband and the wife. God created man, and he created the wife to be his helpmate. And yet they're both equal in their standing before God, spiritually speaking, just with differing roles. However, with the fall of man into sin, we see authority and submission being perverted and twisted ever since. Instead of seeing those in positions of leadership exercising wise, loving, and sacrificial rule over those who are under their authority, instead we so often see leaders being foolish and selfish and abusive toward those who are under them. And on the other hand, when individuals are in a position where they're required to be humbly submissive, instead we often see prideful and willful rebellion. However, in the church, it's not to be this way. Because through the redemptive work of Christ, men and women are being set free from slavery to sin, sin that has so twisted these things of authority and submission. The church, instead, should be a testimony to the whole world of how Jesus Christ is able to save and transform men and women. Some of the most bitter conflict in our world comes as a result of sin's perversion of authority and submission. We see it in the relationships, for example, between governments and their citizens. Our own nation was birthed out of a revolt against an oppressive authoritarian government. We also see this conflict creep up between husbands and wives when both are not exercising their roles the way God has commanded them to do so. We see this conflict creep up between parents and children, this conflict that comes out of a twisted authority and submission. But the church is supposed to be different. In the church, the loving exercise of authority and the loving submission to that authority ought to catch the world's attention by being utterly different. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And where does that show up most clearly, if not in how people exercise authority over others and how people submit to that authority over, other, uh, over them in the church. If someone sees a husband sacrificially leading his wife and he sees a wife um, humbly submitting to her husband, that ought to catch the world's attention. If we are persevering in faith in Christ, the way we exercise authority over others and the way we submit to authority that is over us will begin to change. And our passage this morning addresses one side of this equation. Our passage tells us how we as Christians ought to respond to those who are in authority over us in the church. And in this passage, we are given two commands. First, 
we are to obey our church leaders. And second, we are to pray for our church leaders. That is what submission is supposed to look like in the church of Christ. So let's look at this passage. Verse 17, we're, we're going to see here how we are commanded to obey our church leaders. Verse 17, he begins by saying, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, before we get too far, we need to identify who these leaders are. Who are these people that the preacher is talking about? The preacher who was writing this letter to this Jewish group of believers. Well, this word for leaders, it's actually the same word that we find in verse 7. Remember verse 7, where the preacher says, Remember those who led you. It's the same root word there. It's the same kind of leader that he's talking about there. But there in verse 7, the preacher is mentioning leaders who apparently have died. They've already lived out their days because the preacher can point to their lives as a completed body of work that he's encouraging these believers to look to, to consider how they persevere to the end, consider the outcome of their conduct and imitate their faith. They've gone on before them. They've died now. They've run their race. And what did these past leaders do, according to verse 7? They spoke the word of God to these believers. They spoke the word of God. And presumably, in verse 17, the leaders that he's talking about who are alive at the time of this writing, presumably these leaders are doing the same thing, leading the same way, by speaking the word of God to the people. Now, given that they're called leaders, given that this is their task, speaking the word of God to people, what does that make these leaders? What do other scriptures, uh, what are the words that other scriptures have to call these leaders? Well, we find the word elders, we find the word pastors, we find the word overseers. In fact, I want to show you one of these passages. Uh, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, scripture uses different words to describe this kind of leader who is in this office. And it uses these words interchangeably. An elder and a pastor and overseer, they're all the same office in the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders, there's one of the words, among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd... There's the word for pastor. Pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So you see, Peter is referring to these men with these three different terminologies, elder, overseer, pastor, or shepherd. He says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, the chief pastor, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus is the chief shepherd. So these men that the preacher is talking about in verse 17 of Hebrews 13, they're elders, they're pastors, they're overseers, they are men who have the unique function in the church 
of exercising spiritual authority over the men and women of the congregation. And how do they do that? They do that by ministering or serving the word of God to the people, directing the congregation according to the word of God. And there's one other thing I want you to notice in this verse. He says, obey your leaders, plural. Not obey your leader, obey your leaders, plural. Not just one leader, but multiple leaders, multiple elders, multiple pastors and overseers. Scripture always speaks of a plurality of elders in the church. A plurality of elders is necessary for the governing of the local church, not just one man. For example, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Titus, and he's instructing him of, of what to do, how to set up government in the church, he says, I sent you to appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. Multiple elders per church. And that is why in New Woodstock Community Church here, we have multiple elders. There's myself, there's Pastor Barney, there's Owen. So I am not the pastor, I am a pastor laboring alongside two other pastors. An elder is a pastor, an elder is an overseer, a leader in the church. So you may not have realized that you actually have three pastors here, but you do. I just happen to be the one that you've freed up to devote most of my time to ministry by paying me. So these leaders here in Hebrews 13 are elders in the church. They are the ones speaking the word of God to the believers. Now the question is, how are we as Christians supposed to relate to these men who are leading us? Well, we're commanded here to obey them and to submit to them. Now, obedience and submission, they are dirty words in our culture. We don't like those words. We don't like authority. We're Americans. We're Americans. We plan our own way. We do our own thing. But the idea of submitting my will to the will of another that is so often repulsive to us, should that idea be repulsive to us? Should it be repulsive to me to submit my will to the will of another as a Christian? If it is repulsive to me, then I'm never truly going to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Because Jesus requires you to believe in him, not only as your Savior, but also as your Lord, your Master, your, your King. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confess what? That he's Lord, he's my master, he calls the shots, and only him. I give up all of my autonomy to Jesus to rule me however he pleases. If we are unwilling to submit our will to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, you cannot be saved from your sins. You cannot be saved from hell. We must bow our knee in submission to the King of Kings. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead in order to bring us into service to him 
not simply to purchase for us a get-out-of-hell-free card and then we can go back spending our lives on self and sin. No, he purchased us with his blood to be his people, a people zealous for good deeds. Now, you may be thinking as, as we read this verse, Josh, this is an easy message for you to preach when you are the pastor. Lucky you, you don't have to submit to anyone. It's easy for you to stand up there and tell us that we have to submit to you. Well, that's not true. Because there is not one of us three elders who has more authority than the other. And there is not one of us elders who is without another elder over us. Just because myself and Pastor Barney and Owen are elders, that doesn't mean that we are exempt from obeying verse 17. Barney and Owen are my pastors that I am required to submit to. Myself and Barney are the pastors Owen submits to. And myself and Owen are the pastors that Barney submits to. Do you see how that works, this mutual submission to one another, even among the elders? So there's no one in this church who is without an authority over them. We're all called to submit including me, to the leadership of the church. And ultimately, we're all under the authority of who? Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, continuing to contemplate verse 17, why is it so important that we obey and submit to our leaders? It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. First, I want you to see that this phrase, they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, that shows that this command to obey is not an unqualified command. We're not required to submit to every church leader out there, regardless of whether or not he matches up to the qualifications that are laid out for him by Scripture. There are a lot of corrupt and disqualified pastors out there. No, the leaders that we are commanded here to submit to our leaders who are faithfully doing what? Watching over our souls. They're not like what we read about in Ezekiel 34, feeding themselves, only worrying about themselves, taking advantage of the flock. Those aren't the kind of leaders that we're being called to submit to. But it's important that we obey these faithful leaders because God is the one who has graciously given them to the church. That's what Ephesians 4 says. He's given them as gifts to the church. To do what? To stand as guards and nurturers over our souls. They protect us from those who would seek to harm us by their false teaching. They feed our souls upon the word of God that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're called sheep in Scripture. And sheep are prone to do what? Wander. We need shepherds over us, keeping an eye out for us. Even the leaders, I'm a sheep. If there's not other leaders that I'm accountable to, I will just wander off and I will take you with me over the cliff of false teaching. So these leaders here that we're being called to submit to, they are supposed to be some of the most beloved men in our lives because they watch over our most precious possession, our eternal souls. And God is the one who's placed them in authority over us. 
So to rebel against that kind of leadership is to rebel ultimately against who? Against God. That's right. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now this responsibility to the Lord and to his people that leaders have, this responsibility ought to give them a healthy amount of fear and trembling because faithful elders realize that they are going to have to give an account of how well they watched over the souls of their congregation. That's what he says here. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. An account to who? Well, Paul, he lays it right out for us very clearly. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, when he's charging Timothy to fulfill his pastoral responsibility, what does he say to him? Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So who are we going to give an account to? God, Jesus Christ the judge of the living and the dead. I want you to look at Acts chapter 20 with me because in this passage, Paul highlights the seriousness of the task of the one who ministers the word of God to Christ's bride. Acts chapter 20. Starting in verse 25, in this passage, Paul has called the elders of the um, Ephesian church to meet with him because he's never going to see them again. He's going to say goodbye to them and give them final instruction. Acts chapter 20, verse 25, Paul says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So Paul, he was a leader among them. He was speaking the word of God to these people. Verse 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. How can he say that? How can he say he was innocent of the blood of all men? Verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, if Paul had not, if Paul had shrunk from declaring to them the whole purpose of God, what would that imply? that he would have the blood of souls of believers on his hands, that he would bear some responsibility for any harm that fell upon the souls of the believers that he was shepherding. And now he's passing the baton onto these men. Verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he's saying to these men, listen, the people that God has put you over 
are people that the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, spilled his blood for. They are his blood-bought bride. Now, if someone mistreats my wife, that person and me are going to have a problem because he mistreated my wife. Now, I'm not all that scary, so that might not be much of a deterrent. I'm sorry, honey. But Jesus Christ has a bride. And if he has appointed someone to watch out for his bride and that man mishandles his bride, that man has to answer to Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings. He's coming, and with the sword that is coming out of his mouth, he is going to slay his enemies. You must fear him. You must take that seriously. I must take that seriously. And Jesus, in speaking of this same reality, is just as graphic and severe in his exhortation to his 12 disciples. I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 41 to 48 of Luke 12. But this passage, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and his disciples. And in verse 35, he's talking about how they must be dressed in readiness. They have to be ready for him to come back and set up his kingdom. And if they're not found ready, they're not going to have a place in his kingdom. And then I want you to look at verse 41. Peter said, Lord... Are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Peter wanted to know, does this have special application for him as an apostle? Well, obviously this passage has application to everyone. We're all to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to highlight the fact that there is a heightened application for leaders in the church of whom the 12 disciples were going to be. Look at what Jesus says in response to Peter's question in verse 22. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? It's not too hard to figure out what Jesus is meaning here. Who are his servants but the people of God? Who is the steward who the master, Jesus, is putting over his servants, if not leaders in the church? And in this context, specifically, the twelve apostles. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to feed the servants, give them their rations at the proper time. Leaders are supposed to feed the people the word of God. Verse 43, blessed is that slave, speaking of this steward who's over his slaves, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave <clears throat> says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready 
or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to him, or, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. As leaders, we are held to a much higher standard because we are supposed to know what the master wants us to do. And the fact that he has appointed us as leaders means he has given much to us. Christ has given much to us, and he will require much of us as leaders. He has entrusted much to us. He's entrusted his bride into our hands. And so he's going to ask a lot of leaders, more than of other people in his kingdom. So to be a leader in Christ's church is to willingly take upon yourself a much higher degree of accountability before God. That is why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So what does this mean for a leader, an elder, a pastor? When a leader steps before God's people to instruct them, he should feel a desperate need to get it right and an urgent need to make sure that he is striving to live it out himself. And that need should drive leaders to cry out to the Lord to enable them by his grace and by his spirit to do what they know they cannot do faithfully without him. His grace and his spirit is the only reason I don't run off crying and quit right now. Nobody can do this without the Lord. This verse goes on to say, back to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 verse 17. Goes on to say, let them, these leaders, instructing the congregation, let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. When a leader is faithfully instructing the congregation in accordance, not with his own ideas, but with the word of God, your obedience and your submission to the word of God will bring those leaders great joy. We see this with the Apostle John in 2 John and verse 4 of that single chapter. John says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment to do from the Father. John was thrilled to find that the believers that he had passed on the word of God to, they were walking in that truth. That gave him great joy. And then in 3 John, verses 3 through 4 of that chapter, he says, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. It gives great joy to a leader to find the congregation obeying the word of God. 
On the other hand, if a leader is faithfully declaring the word of God to you and you rebel against his scriptural instruction, that will bring an elder great grief. We see this with Paul in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Remember the Galatians, he had come to them, he had preached the gospel to them, they had received the gospel, they had believed in it. But at the time he's writing this letter to them, they have begun to stray from the gospel that he preached to them. And look at what he says in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 4. Or just listen if you're not there. He says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And then in verses 19 and 20 of that chapter, he says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. All you have to do is read Paul's letters and see how over the moon he is when he finds his people walking in repentant faith and how absolutely devastated he is when he finds the churches not walking according to the word of God. To an elder, the people of his congregation are like his children. They are his children in the faith. And just as with Christian parents, there's no greater joy for Christian parents to see their child sincerely following Christ. And there's no greater grief for Christian parents than to see their child rebelling and not following Christ. And it's a great grief to them because they know what that will mean for their child's eternal soul, their child whom they love so deeply. No Christian believer wants their kids to wind up in hell. I pray for my son's salvation. It is much the same feeling for an elder when he sees how his congregation responds to the word of God. If you were to refuse to submit yourself to God's word, it would mean great harm for your soul. And that would bring great grief to your elders because it would indicate that you don't know Christ and you're headed for hell. But if you do faithfully submit yourself to the Lord Jesus, as he's revealed himself in the scriptures, that brings us great joy because it indicates to us that you do know Christ and that means that you will experience eternal satisfaction with him in his kingdom forever and we want that for you. So we have this command, obey your leaders and submit to them. Brings us to our second command in verses 18 and 19. We are to pray for our church leaders. Verse 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now considering what the task entails for church leaders, watching over the souls of their people, Is it any wonder now that that we are commanded to pray for our leaders? You want the one who is handling your soul to know what he's doing. And so you're going to pray for him, that God would give him wisdom, make him faithful, help him in being effective in feeding your soul. We have to pray because elders are mere men, sinners saved by grace, just like you. And just like you, they have weaknesses and they're prone to the same kinds of sins. 
And in fact, elders are often faced with even greater temptations than others because Satan knows that he can hurt a lot more people if he takes out a Christian leader. He knows he can bring a whole lot more of reproach upon the name of Christ. He can divert a lot more people into hell along with him if he takes down a leader of the church. Do we not see this strategy of Satan having great effect in our country today? Week after week, we see pastors being exposed as hypocrites and fakes due to their adulterous affairs and their financial improprieties. And we see much damage being done to the church and much reproach being brought upon the name of Christ on account of these fallen leaders. The world sees a fallen leader and he thinks, that guy's not any better than the rest of us. In fact, he's worse than us. Why in the world would I entrust myself to the Lord that he's preaching? I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of God. And they really have no concern about truth. It's simply you giving them an excuse to reject Christ. It can take decades for the Lord to mold a man and to form his character to the point that he can become an elder in the church, but it can take a mere matter of seconds for that same elder to disqualify himself and to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And so the preacher exhorts his readers to pray for him, to pray for the other leaders of the church. He commands them to pray because he says, we are not fakes, we are not hypocrites. He says, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. He's assuring this congregation that praying for them is necessary and proper because they are laboring with a clear conscience. On the other hand, if that wasn't true of them, no amount of praying will convince God to bless the ministry of an elder who is disqualified and yet continuing to act as an elder. To pray for the ministry of such a man is just one big waste of time because God is not going to bless a man who is dragging his holy name through the filth of his sin. You can be sure that sooner or later that elder's sins are going to find him out. And he also urges them to pray for him personally because he knows that God works mightily through the prayers of his people. He says in verse 19, I urge you all the more to do this. Why? So that I may be restored to you the sooner. Something was preventing this preacher from getting to his people, from fulfilling his ministry to them. The prayers of his people for him was necessary for him to fully carry out his ministry to them. We see here a principle that we find in Scripture. There's a reason God calls us to devote ourselves to prayer and to pray for our leaders. Because an elder will not be able to fulfill his ministry to the believers he is overseeing if the people of God are not praying for him. God has sovereignly chosen to accomplish so much of his great work through the prayers of his people. And he's designed it that way for the glory of his own name. When we acknowledge our dependence upon God through prayer, and then he acts, we give him thanks. Because we prayed for this, God did this, 
And we rejoice that God did it, and he was pleased by his grace to involve us in what he's doing. But for him to act without his people's awareness, to just act without us exercising any kind of dependence upon him, where would our praises be? We wouldn't even recognize it. That's why we pray, is to bring glory to his name. I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where it's so clearly illustrated for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers, and he's sharing with them the great struggles that he's had. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Verse 11. You also joining in helping us. How were the Corinthian believers going to join in helping Paul? Through your prayers. Through your prayers. Why? So that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. God could have just delivered Paul without anybody praying for Paul. But then, how much praise would God get? Paul would praise him, but no one else. But if God is designed to not act apart from the prayers of his people, when his people pray and then he acts, you have all these people who were praying now glorifying the name of God. That is why we pray. And so that is why he commands the people here to pray for the leaders. Because you can see me and... If you don't pray for me and God does something, if you don't pray for the other elders and God still works through them, what are you going to say? Man, that guy knows how to be a good pastor. I wish all churches had a pastor like that guy. But instead, if you actually consider who we are, man, those guys need some help. They cannot do this. They really need someone to intervene because nothing's going to happen unless God makes it happen. And then you pray for us, and then God does something. You praise God because you saw that he acted through weak men. Now, I hope you know, and I'm confident that you do know, that myself, Pastor Barney, and Owen, by being elders and pastors in Christ's church, we are not attempting to stroke our egos. We have accepted being appointed to this position because others have testified to us of seeing the grace of God at work in our lives, transforming our character to the point that we could be of some benefit to your spiritual growth. And as the preacher said here in verse 18, being sure that he has a good conscience, so we have come into this position with clear consciences because we ourselves have humbly and gratefully recognized that God has done a work of grace in our own hearts. And I say humbly because we know that God does not need us to accomplish his work here. He could raise up other men to take our place tomorrow. We are disposable. 
And I think I can safely speak for the others by saying that we do not want to remain elders in Christ's church if we were ever to disqualify ourselves. There's too much at stake for your souls, not to mention our own souls, if we were to continue in a disqualified state. And we, your elders, we're not so foolish to think that we are immune from the danger of disqualifying ourselves. Like I said, it can happen in a matter of seconds. One bad decision, one season of not drawing close to the Lord, and we leave ourselves open to temptation. And we also understand that we have no hope of fulfilling our ministry apart from the Lord's enabling. And so we beg you to pray for us. We cannot be of any benefit whatsoever to you if God does not work in us and through us by means of your prayers. We can be of great harm to you, but we cannot be of much benefit to you apart from God's enabling grace. So let each one of us be faithful to obey our leaders, biblical instruction, and let us each be faithful to pray for our leaders that God would make them faithful and effective because it's only he who can do that. Only he builds his church, no one else. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the instruction that it gives to us. Things that we would not know that we ought to do unless you had revealed it to us, Lord. Father, please forgive us how we fall short, how we can so often pridefully buck against biblical instruction, and how we can uh, be so quick to, to fall short in lifting up our leaders to you in prayer. I know I need to pray more for my leaders, Barney and Owen. Lord, I just pray that you would make us faithful to this, not to please men, but to please you. And because we know that nothing can happen here that brings you glory unless it's you doing it, Lord. And you've been pleased to use weak men, weak individuals to lead your church. Uh, we know that we are uh, vessels of clay so that you may get all the glory because you are the one who does the work, Lord. May you be pleased to accomplish your work in your church here in New Woodstock, we plead with you in Jesus' name, amen.